again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. And we are flying by the seat of our pants today because we are coming at you with a completely different show than what we had planned. It's very much like a Saturday morning at 1960 Union Avenue, getting ready to tape an episode of Channel 5 Wrestling, and Jerry Lawler comes in at the last minute and rewrites the entire show. Uh, Brian, do you want to tell them about this golden opportunity that was presented to us? And I seized it, and I think I have some compelling evidence that may finally solve the Mill Mascaris Monday Night Mystery. It was a crazy chain of events. We had another show ready to be recorded. We had a whole nother format, a whole nother topic. And literally, as we were on the line together about to record, I remembered that I had seen something about Mill Mascaris doing an autograph signing. I didn't remember where, I didn't remember when. And when I did a quick search, I realized it was now. And it was not too far from Scott Bowden's house. So we dropped the show, we dropped the call, and you headed over there and you met one-on-one with Mill Moscaris with an opportunity once and for all to clear up the Mill Moscaris Monday Night Mystery. That's exactly right. Mono Imano. Of course, I was at a decided disadvantage since I don't speak Mexican. However, I approached him like an earnest fan asking him to honestly answer the question, if he was in Memphis, Tennessee at the Mid-South Coliseum in the main event, tag-teaming, working as a heel with Austin Idol against Jerry the King Lawler and Jackie Fargo on January 29th, 1979. And the answer is coming up next. It was bitter cold outside in Memphis, Tennessee on the evening of January 29, 1979, but the heat was off the charts inside the Mid-South Coliseum, home to the territory's biggest shows on Monday nights. According to official reports filed with the Tennessee Athletic Commission, 6,102 customers, including my Uncle Robert and me, paid $22,091 to see a stretcher match main event involving local legends Jerry the King Lawler and his former rival Jackie Fargo reuniting after many years to square off against brash newcomer Austin Idol, the universal heartthrob, and his mass Mexican partner, the international superstar, Mil Mascaris. Or did the fans see that at all? Arthur Mark James discovered a startling revelation when researching his latest book, Memphis Wrestling History Presents Tennessee Athletic Commission Report Filings, 1977-1980. According to the official report, which promoter Jerry Jarrett viewed as a necessary evil to protect the business as true sport, the licensed wrestler appearing under a hood on the evening in question was not the real Mascaris, but an imposter, a sly Mexican ringer named Francisco Flores. Not the original Francisco Flores of Lucha Libre fame, but another man assuming that famous name. Adding to this mystery, we've heard testimony from two men who were there that night, promoter Jarrett and the Masked Stranger's partner himself, the Idol, who both agreed it was indeed Aaron Rodriguez under the hood on that frigid Memphis night. We've also heard those testimonies challenged not only by Mark James, but by another man who was not in the building or even in the business at that point, renowned manager Jim Cornette. 
Despite compelling testimony by Jarrett, who provided detailed explanations of how the appearance came about through Mexican promoter Salvador Luteroff, and that their relationship was the key to the mass sensation not only appearing in the area, but also doing the stretcher job. And he's the one who requested that the finish be changed because he was merely passing through. Because of all this, these naysayers have continued the question why the mysterious hooded egotist would be such a team player on this night when he acted like a tiptoeing prima donna everywhere else and since that appearance. The key to the mystery lies ultimately with Mill Maskers himself, who has never commented on the evening in question until now. Tonight you will hear it straight from the donkey's mouth. Was Mill Maskers really in Memphis on that fateful evening? Or was it a lookalike working for pesos, which is more than he would make with Nick Goulas? Join me as we unmask, finally, the Mill Maskeris Monday Night Memphis Mystery. Although this audio is rough around the edges and is far from an excellent day, Mill's answers, which are somehow both earnest yet arrogant, do indeed solve this mystery, in my opinion, showing us what really happened and answering many forgotten questions. Let's go to the audio. So I, I was a big fan of yours. I uh, getting all the magazines when I was a kid. This is the very first wrestling magazine. Oh, beautiful. This is a travel jacket. Yeah. And, uh, I grew up in Memphis. This is Scott Garden. This is Scott Garden or Tokyo. Yeah, I think it's the Garden. The Garden, I don't think. But uh, you came to Memphis in 1979? Yes, yeah, um, yeah. Tennessee, yeah. yeah. Uh, for Jerry Jarrett? Yeah, yeah, I wrestled there, yeah. Okay. I wrestled all over the United States. Yeah. Almost in all the states in the United States have wrestled. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you remember that night, though? Uh, no. That was the first time I went to the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis. Uh, it was oh, you and yeah. Austin Idol? Austin Idol, yeah, I remember. I remember this match in blues. Because, you know, they I traveled all over the United States. Many times, you know, it's this uh, part of, the, of my profession. They yeah. take me all over the world, you know, and at the same time, a lot of small towns, and yeah. not only in the United States, you know, like in Japan, I'll be almost all Japan, all, like, I have a hundred, seventeen times to Japan. Wow. Yeah, I have a lot of Japanese wrestling magazines. Uh, uh, it's all over the full color uh, spread. United States too, you said travel alone. Yeah. Okay, what name? Here, okay, um, you want it in black? Uh, yeah. Um, yes. And uh, I was talking with Jerry Jarrett, um, and he said that uh, Salvador Luteroff um, uh, helped line this up in 79. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is that, because um, you worked as a heel that night, which was a little unusual. And some people, have, Jim Cornette, oh, you know, has speculated that it, was, that it was a ringer, that it wasn't really you. Um, but uh, Jerry Dirt says that, um, that, it, that it, it, it was. Uh, do, you re do you remember that at all? No, it well, but I know Jim Barnett, I know, I know everybody. <laughs> this business, I know everybody. Yeah. It's part of the inclusive uh, uh, Westwood. I think you're working for Paul Bosch a lot. Well, Paul Bosch is regular in Houston. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I have a the promoter there is Paul Bosch in Houston. And uh, San Antonio, I have another one. And uh, Dallas, 
chance to wrestle in some places they they have a wrestling there and don't see you the people want to see you they have a chance to go there well I've been begging to go to the Coliseum but I was really young um, and because you were going to be there my parents relented and, and took me because uh, they knew I'd been buying the magazines with you on the cover and I was like no no Moss Cross is going to be in Memphis I was so excited so uh, yeah it's a big mistake I remember well, there you have it, folks. You heard it from Mill Maskers himself. He was indeed in Memphis on the night of January 29th, 1979. And it may be hard to tell from that audio clip, but you have to understand, I was, I was actually carrying uh, one of Mark James's books, the top 100 nights in Memphis wrestling history. Now, now, Mark wrote this book when he was still under the assumption, as we all were at the time, 
because uh, Jerry Jarrett told a very compelling, detailed story about how this appearance came about. I mean, it, it definitely would be regarded as a top night in Memphis wrestling history, if indeed it were uh, Aaron Rodriguez. Um, when I showed him this book, and I got, actually got him to autograph it, as soon as he looked at it, I said, you were tag team partners with Austin Idol. And he, as soon as he looked at it, he, he, he laughed. It was actually reminiscent of the, of the slight little giggle that, uh, ironically, that Austin Idol did when he ambushed Jerry Lawler as Diamante Negro when they uh, referred to him as his nickname, El Casa Grande, the big house. There's a little detail that Idol just goes, hmm. <laughs> as if he, you know, he not understanding any of what Lance Russell was saying in English, but as soon as he says something in Spanish, it triggers uh, a laugh from uh, the idol under the hood. So clearly, he he had he had a memory of this. It was his only appearance in Memphis. I would be, I, you know, some of the stuff. Uh, I as I said earlier, I do not speak Mexican. He and this place was it was bizarre. It was the most bizarre autograph signing I think I've ever been to. Uh, first of all, there was no sign on, on this place. I, I pull into the parking lot and I'm looking around for it, and I I see this sort of makeshift banner. <laughs> And this abandoned, you know, there's like all these abandoned stores and I go and I walk in and you can tell, you know, from the audio, I get this warm greeting. The woman, you know, as soon as I pay my $50 for a, an autograph and to breathe the same air as Mil Mascaris and to, uh, to, to get him to sign uh, uh, my book and, and to talk to him for a little bit, $50 for that. But hey, you guys are worth it. And uh, I think it's pretty compelling evidence. What, do, what did you think of the audio clip, Brian? It's interesting because you give him nothing but opportunities to say, no, it wasn't me. You give him nothing but opportunities to deny that he ever wrestled in Memphis. And instead, he just agreed with everything, but he never specifically did. For instance, you would say, well, do you remember Memphis? Ah, see, see, I wrestled all over the world. I wrestled every city you could think of. Ah, I was talking to Jerry Jarrett. Ah, I've, I've met everyone. I know everyone. <laughs> so he never said no, but he brought everything back to the grand nature of this elegant, extravagant, traveling masked man. Yes, yes. Um, and it did, you know, again, it was it was sort of it was bizarre. It, it was like it was a little humble, like, well, that is the nature of this business. Um, and uh, yes, of course, I wrestled in Memphis. Why wouldn't I have wrestled in Memphis? I wrestled all over the world. But it, but it was also like uh, as if to say, I don't know why you're making such a big deal about this. I'm you know, uh, I appeared in Memphis. Uh, to me, it was just another night at the office. That's the impression that I got that he thought of it you know that yeah sure i i remembered it uh and he and he really looked at the book for a while and you know there's a point in the audio where i ask him because i'm not quite getting exactly what i want i want definitive proof i want some kind of detail like oh that fargo man when, when he when he dumped the stretcher over uh, i didn't know he was going to do that and he kicked the ever-loving shit out of me something like that some little detail or you know as soon as we got in the ring fargo had beer on his breath or uh a kid slashed his tires on the way out you know something to wear or it, it, it would give definitive proof what kind of cologne jerry jarrett was wearing that night i don't know and he, he just he wasn't doing that but when i asked him if he would say if he would right yes i was here or maybe see he laughed and he said he said something in spanish to one of his handlers and then he did a very methodical check mark by his name 
on the recreation of the card created by Mark James for that main event. Uh, and then his, his, and it, it was so funny at that point, it was like one thirty, and this thing was shutting down at two o'clock and the number of handlers, he had a whole entourage, you know, and it wasn't, he was wearing, uh, it was almost like Vegas meal mascaras or uh, Liberace mascaras. Um, and, and his handler goes, the check mark says that's proof that he was there that night. And I said, okay. Good enough for me. Uh, but that didn't stop me from <laughs> – you can't yeah, – again, you can't tell from the audio. But the guy kind of like taps me <laughs> at one point like, a, hey, come on. We got we got some other people here because uh, it really turned into an interview from, uh, from, from the start. When you brought up that he was a heel, how did he react? I, you know, honestly, I have to say I was I was looking for some kind of reaction from that. And who knows? I don't know how I don't know how open he is about speaking uh, about the business. You know, a lot of guys have begrudgingly gotten used to it. Uh, you know, Jerry Lawler used to hate it when uh, when somebody would use the term heel or babyface in his presence. Uh, I think Ric Flair was the same way for for a long time because uh, you know I think in their opinion it just made you come off like an idiot trying to show them that you're smart to their business. And I, uh, you know, and a lot has changed and most guys feel totally comfortable with it. I don't know. Maybe I crossed a line there. Uh, he didn't act annoyed, but he didn't really say anything either. And as we all know, <laughs> uh, underneath that mask, it's kind of hard to see uh, the reaction, which I think uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Gordon Sola used to say that that was an advantage uh, as a competitor because you, your opponent never knew uh, if you were truly suffering or not. So, but let's remember, the ridiculous nature of the story wasn't just that he was in Memphis. It was the nature of the way he lost. That, that he is was a true. heel and that he did a stretcher job. You did not bring up the fact that he lost and that he did a stretcher job. So let me ask you, a man of the sizable ego that we assume Mil Moscaris has, if you don't bring up those facts, wouldn't he just agree with anything? Mil, I saw you wrestle in Egypt. Ah, yes, I wrestled all over the world. I saw I in Canada. Oh yes, yes, yes. I wrestled. I don't know. I, 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 if he had, let's just say that that he, if he had, if he had worked Memphis uh, one other time or a couple of other times, I would, I would agree with you. But Memphis was such a unique town, and I did sort of say, you know, during that time period, we looked, we looked at your record books. You weren't booked anywhere else that evening, and you actually had been working a lot for promoter Paul Bosch and his. And that his eyes lit up, you know, and I thought, OK, great. We're going to get this story about, you know, yeah, I was working a lot in, in Houston and Texas is not too far from Tennessee. And uh, I had an off night, so I went. That's what, you know, I kept feeding him this stuff. And some of it may have sounded repetitive. But again, I was just wanting some kind of spe a specific detail. But, uh, you know, he, he wouldn't he wouldn't give it to me. You know, it, it was really like, well, yeah, of course I did. But I think in his mind, what he what it, what it, what in effect he was saying was that I don't know why you find this this appearance so unusual. And I I honestly got the feeling I was pushing my luck by asking so many questions. And I and I almost went, well, you know, because you, you know, you, you did the thing, you know, you rode the stretcher to the back. You did a stretcher job. That's why people really have a hard time uh accepting this uh i did think it was I, I did think it was especially interesting that i mentioned uh jim Cornette as one of the guys who has a trouble swallowing this story and 
you can hear him repeat ah Jim Gordon ah he, and he laughed for some reason I I'm not sure what that's about but uh, I thought that was really interesting but that's the thing we hear we don't see you saw it so yeah. how much of it was just you bring up something you go ah yeah Paul Bosch yes 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 and how much was it that he was actually following along with what you were saying and directly responding to not just the names but what you were saying. You know what? It almost felt like a gag. It almost felt like <laughs> like he was starting to give me something, and then he would sort of veer off because he goes, like I said, he goes, "Ah, oh, yes, Paul Bosch, uh, you know, in in Houston there." And then I and then I would go to uh, the Fox and Amarillo, and then <laughs> and then he starts like kind of just naming off the other territories. And so yeah, so of course, yes, of course. Why 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 wouldn't I have appeared in Tennessee? Why wouldn't I have appeared in Memphis? Uh, and then I, you know, at the very, I think the last thing that I, that I asked him, you know, I told him the story about, I even brought the first wrestling magazine that I ever bought, uh, in 1978, uh, sign of the times I had seen somebody reading a wrestling magazine on an episode of Charlie's angels. And I'd been a wrestling fan for about a year and I thought, Oh my God. And I was just a voracious reader at an early age. And I begged my father to take me to a seven 11 the next day to get a wrestling magazine. And the first one I had some uh, Mill Mascaris and Ric Flair uh, on the cover. And I had that with me. And after he signed Mark James's book, uh, and I also thought it was amusing. He had no idea how to spell Scott, <laughs> which is, I guess, is not a very common name uh, in, in Mexico. And he had picked, you know, he had already, he was already looking at the magazine and you can hear him asking, I think he goes, he goes, that is either Tokyo or Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I did hear that, but hold on, hold on. You just hit on a major thing. You hear on the tape, he doesn't know how to spell Scott. But when you say your name, he repeats it back to you like he knows exactly how to spell it. Yeah, yeah. And it and sometimes, you know, he would look at his handler like he didn't know what I was saying. And I thought, I've heard him do interviews before. And I thought he spoke English fairly well. It was almost like it was very selective in, in his answers. Uh, I almost looked around for like a camera uh, to see if I were, it really it almost felt like I was being set up in, in some ways because he was sort of being, uh, I guess it was more, I guess just that opening moment when he, when he really, you know, he held the book in his hands and he was looking at that main event and he just, and he laughed. He's like, yes, see, see, he said, see, yes, yes. Um, but again, just no real definitive answer. And then, and then he, as he, he was going to sign the, he was going to sign the magazine, and the guy goes, no, 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 he only paid for one. <laughs> oh my gosh, they were about to uh, have a fit because he was going to give me two autographs for the price of one. I like how you went from you never mentioned. Oh, I used to work in the business, or oh, I used to have a column. You went in there as just the average fan, but then all of a sudden you start name dropping like, oh, I spoke to uh, Jerry Jarrett the other day and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we talked about you, <laughs> coincidentally enough. Well, yeah, I thought the best approach would be to go in there as a wide-eyed fan, which is why I'm just like, oh, you know, and, it, and that, you know what? It, a lot of that is very true. I did think that he was really something special and I love superheroes. I was a big Marvel comics guy before I was a wrestling fan. So I see this guy wearing these outfits uh, on, you know, he's practically every cover. We talked about how Bill after had this huge man crush on him. Um, when you see the guy in person, uh, you know, a little, not quite what I expected. Um, 
but again, you know, a solid performer. But I was really, really fascinated with the guy when I was young. And, and that has to be the reason that I was able to finally convince my uncle to take me to the matches because I was, you know, I was already like a huge Lawler fan. And so now, you know, these two, and this is one of the great things about the kayfabe era, you know, uh, when you didn't have cable and these guys who appeared in the magazines, they almost took like mythical proportions because we never saw them on TV. You only read about these fantastic exploits in the magazines and you just thought that they were incredible. Uh, without even seeing them. So when they came to your area, I I, I must have just begged and pleaded and, and bugged the shit out of my poor uncle until he agreed to take me. And that was, you know, the first night that I was able to go to the Mid-South Coliseum. So, yeah, getting the answer to this mystery was very important to me. As soon as you said it, Brian, I was like, oh, no. I went in there. I asked permission for my wife because we... <laughs> We had, had plans. <laughs> we had plans uh, scheduled for the day. And she's like, "Go, just go." I know how much this means to you. <laughs> oh my gosh! Because as Jim Cornette says, "All my hopes and dreams, all you know, every my childhood will be a lie if it's not the real Mill Maskers." He's in effect that he's saying that that's why Jerry Jarrett uh, continues this charade, even though it was really Francisco Flores, which. Brian, I failed to mention this earlier, and you and I have talked about it. Francisco Flores was booked elsewhere that night, wasn't he? Yeah, funny enough, you know, I know you mentioned earlier that one of Mark James's books has the actual wrestling license for Francisco Flores and indicates that he was Mil Moscaris that night in Memphis, but another of his books is the same guy doing the research for that book, did research for another book, and in that book it has results for him wrestling in Alabama that night for Nick Goulas. Yes, and Jim Cornette did raise a very good point. He said, now, wait a minute, was that the published card, the advertised card, or was that the results? Unfortunately, and again, this just adds fuel to the fire, no one can find results. I've asked several different historians. They found two different versions of the newspaper ad. But you also have to think about this was the biggest card that Goulas to that point had promoted in Birmingham because it was the first time that Harley Race would defend the NWA world title against Randy Macho Man Savage, the Mid-America champion. And they had been bringing up Savage and talking about his climb to get a shot at the world heavyweight champion for, oh, it was almost, it was very reminiscent of the push that Jerry Lawler got. They were constantly talking about Savage's spot in the ratings and and where he was and if he suffered a setback how that was going to affect his chance of finally cornering harley race now unfortunately as we know with paul bosch sometimes when harley didn't feel like going to the (laughs) didn't feel like showing up he just didn't show up uh he actually no showed that night and and uh at the battle auditorium in birmingham so i find it very hard to believe that francisco flores who you He was able to get away with no showing that match to work for Jarrett and then rejoin the crew days later when he's the second from the top. He was uh, working. uh, He was involved in a really hot feud with his tag team partner, Bobby Eaton, against the Fabulous Freebirds at the time. So that would be a major, major deal if he missed that show, I would think. Funny enough, it was a little while after this where Harley Race missed a second show for Paul Bosch, leading the Paul Bosch having nothing to do with the NWA and using Nick Bockwinkel as the AWA world champion on his shows. 
Yeah, I believe, and didn't he? Because I, I believe the opponent was Wahoo McDaniel, and they had a makeshift tournament that That's night. Right. Yeah, and Wahoo won it. And wow, the one thing you do not do is is talk about crowning another world heavyweight champion. And for a while, I I, I think it may have been only for a week or two that they were actually billing uh, Wahoo as the true world heavyweight champion. Which uh, you know, back in those days, you just didn't do, you didn't piss off the alliance by doing that. And he gave up that championship to get a shot against Nick Bockwinkle and the AWA championship. But obviously, Mil Mosker is a big star in Houston. Memphis, not too far from Houston. If you were flying from Houston to Memphis, how long would it take you? Oh, gosh. Uh, two and a half hours at the most, two hours. So again, it's not crazy to think that Mil Mosker is already wrestling in Texas would get on a plane and fly to Memphis. Yeah, and and the funny, you know, what's what's weird about it, uh, Jerry Jarrett says that it was less about Salvador Luderoth doing him a favor and more about, <laughs> and this is this again, what, what makes it somewhat humorous, uh, because to me, even though I think I think they often discounted just how many fans paid attention to the magazines, maybe they weren't you know, loyal readers that maybe there were a lot of subscriptions in the Memphis area because Memphis was traditionally like a, like a, a, a not advanced town. But I think a lot of people were reading those magazines on the newsstand. They had to be aware of their existence. If you, if you were a wrestling fan, you're at a newsstand, you're going to see these wrestling magazines. And Mill Mascaris was right there with Andre and Dusty for the most appearances on a cover at that point in time in 1979 and, or, and, and in, in, in late 1978, when I started buying the wrestling magazines, he was on virtually every cover. Um, because I get, you know, I, with the colorful outfits, clearly he sold magazines. So, uh, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a bizarre situation. I think going in, I was about 90% sure, uh, just because Nothing ever completely shocks me in the wrestling business. Coming out of it, I would say I'm about 99.9% sure. Again, just you know, you just have to take my word on it. He really looked at that main event. He saw the lineup. He he and he goes, "Oh, Austin Idol, yeah." I mean, he he. It looked like to me a guy remembering that night that he played heel and did a stretcher job. You know, which goes against everything that he would normally do. And maybe that's why he laughed. But he really it did strike me as the kind of guy that's going to reveal a lot to a fan in an autograph signing. Was there anything that you saw that we wouldn't pick up from listening to the audio tape? Any even minor indication of him? Well, yeah, you know, there was there was some conversation in Spanish that I felt like, you know, again, I feel like he could have answered me directly if he really wanted to. Um, so that's curious. And I, and I thought about asking a friend of mine who's fluent in Spanish to, to just have a listen and, and see what he's saying, which, you know, the whole thing is a little, <laughs> is a little underhanded. Um, I can't believe Very you haven't Amorosa called, of you. I can't, I can't believe you haven't called me out uh, for, for taking the tape recorder in. But I, I was actually wearing my skinny jeans that my wife had bought for me, which was just a total bit. And it accidentally set off the voice recorder. Uh, totally, totally uh, plausible. I'm sure you you believe that. Um, so I had no idea I was getting this audio to begin with. But again, it, and it, obviously the man who took your phone to take the picture had no idea the audio was being recorded oh, on that phone at that moment either. 
Oh my God! Yeah, you could hear like there's like a little bit of a of a jump in the in the and I can only assume that when he's taking you know he took uh, two photographs uh, and when he when he took a, he yanked the phone out of my hand. I assumed for fifty bucks that they had a nice camera and it was going to be like a glossy eight by ten. But no, it's like, hey kid, give me your phone, I'll take your picture, and I'm like. <laughs> because I had the voice recorder thing going and I just knew that he was going to look at it. You know, what is this? And smash the phone. Maybe they, you know, these guys are going to rough me up. And then ironically, I would be carried out on a stretcher. <laughs> Salvador, this <laughs> is Mill. You're not going to believe it. Someone showed up with a tape recorder. <laughs> asking, me about that, asking me about that night in Memphis. <laughs> Damn you. I knew it would come back to haunt me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And I have to say the response has just has been amazing uh from 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 our listeners. I posted about it. I did a little bit a little bit of a of a tease uh about the answer because it's something that you know, I've waited so long for. Uh, no one's waited longer than me for the answer to uh to this question. You know, even before the even before the the whole argument about the license came up, Brian, you know, I had my doubts. You know, just given the way that uh, Jerry Jarrett would sometimes take liberties, but he's been forthright about every single one of those. When he when he booked the Mass Superstar or, or advertised the Mass Superstar, has appearing in the area on two separate occasions, two different uh, years. It, it was uh, uh, gosh, it was definitely not Bill Eighty, Jerry Stubbs in '85, and I believe one of the Bounty Hunters, Jerry Novak, who actually played. Uh, several different masked uh, superstars over the years. Uh, when they brought in Mr. Wrestling, uh, as a rival to Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee, at one point has the North American heavyweight champion. Uh, it was not Tim Woods. Um, who is that? <laughs> Dick Steinborn. That's right. That's right. And but you know, and even with that though, Jerry remembers the whole situation. And he explains that he was he had actually talked to Tim Woods and had pitched him this story, the storyline where an imposter would come into Memphis claiming to be Mr. Wrestling. And then he it would turn out that he would be exposed and Tim Woods would come to, you know, fight for his identity. And then somehow I think Tim got injured and it never worked out. Um, And if you look at the programs from that era. It was, you know, Tim Woods had had a pretty sick, a pretty well defined physique, one that was very distinct. I feel like, just like Mill Maskers had that had that V, that V shape uh, that Austin Idol mentioned. Uh, he said, you know, I, I mean, as far as I know, that was the guy. I mean, there aren't too many guys that have that kind of build. And if you look at Francisco Flores, the Mexican angel at the time, yeah, he he was thick, he was in shape, but he man, he he was not cut. Uh, like Mill Maskers. Not at all. No. No. So I, I don't know. I, it, it's, but it would have been easy for my eight-year-old eyes, sitting in the cheap seats, to be fooled. Admittedly. So, uh, gosh, I, you know, I wish there were photos. I have no idea uh, if it's one hundred percent true. But I called Jerry Jarrett after I got out. I said, "You're not going to believe who I just spoke to," and he's like, "Who?" And <laughs> I said, I said, Mill Maskers. He goes, what? And I explained the situation. He goes, uh-huh. And what did he tell you? And I said, he told me. <laughs> like, he knew exactly what the answer was going to be. Not a doubt in his mind. I said, he said it was him. 
he said, you know, he didn't give me a lot of details, but he looked at it and goes, yes, yes, that was me. He goes, see, he goes, and I don't know why that picture taker, he wasn't even in the business, wasn't even in my locker room. Don't know why he would uh, try to say that it wasn't him when he wasn't there because he wasn't there. So there you have it. Uh, I'll, I guess I'll open it up uh, to our listeners, and I'm sure they will let me know what they think of the audio and if it's uh, compelling evidence to finally put the Monday night mystery to bed. Well, let's look briefly here at the evidence on one side and the other. On the side that it is him, Jerry Jarrett and Austin Idol both said that it was him. They don't really agree on very much. So two people who are diametrically opposed on almost every issue both said it was Mil Moskris. We can't find any results for any other shows on that date or even on that week, I don't think. But we do know he had just been in Houston and he had been going in and out of Texas frequently during that period of time. Obviously, he had his regular Japanese tours. We do not have a record of Mil Moskris for 1979 to examine everything, but that's a lot of the evidence that he was there. The evidence that he wasn't there, Jerry Lawler remembers nothing. There are no (laughs) photos of anything. Apparently, clips of the match aired on the newscast, but that video has been lost to time to the best of anyone's knowledge as of right now. And then, most importantly, the idea is ridiculous. (laughs) <laughs> That's the biggest thing that the side that says there's no way it was Mil Moskris has going for it. It's ridiculous to think this man, who is known for not selling much, who is known for having a big ego, who is known for wanting the magazine coverage, who is the biggest babyface star to many people all over the world, that he would go in there and for the first time and only time work heel and lose the match and do a stretcher job to Jackie Fargo. It sounds crazy. It gets crazier because when you approach Jerry Jarrett and ask him about this, he doesn't just say, yes, it's true. (laughs) He has a whole story for you. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That he met Salvador Luteroff at uh, uh, one of the NWA conventions in Las Vegas. And this is, I I believe, shortly after he had won the war with, uh, with Nick Goulas. And a lot of people in the alliance were impressed with this soft spoken young man. I mean, not only was he very mindful of speaking out of turn and was very respectful toward his elders and the membership. But, you know, he, 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 he was a perfect example, I guess, of, of uh, walking softly and carrying a big stick. You know, uh, he, he was, there was no doubting his ambition. Uh, the fact that he was able to get that backing of Eddie Graham, one of the major power players in the NWA, uh, and Jim Barnett's backing as well after helping Atlanta win the wrestling war. Um, you know, it, it, it had to impress a lot of people, including a guy like Salvador Ludorov, who's looking at this guy and thinking, you know, this guy's going to be an alliance figure uh, way after I'm gone. Uh, as it turned out, that was not the case <laughs> as uh, Jarrett, you know, eventually abandoned the NWA largely. And uh, I mean, they were still a member in theory, but began pushing Nick Bockwinkle as the AWA World Heavyweight Champion. And then by 1979, had crowned and created their own heavyweight championship of the world, the CWA Championship. So, uh, again, all these things that just piss off the alliance. But I think the the crazy aspect of it is what makes this also interesting. Uh, but now, if you really look at the facts, Brian, I, I, and I understand all you know, everything that you said is true. 
But you have his tag team partner that evening. The fact that Jerry Lauder doesn't remember is not shocking to anyone who knows Jerry, and I'm not knocking the King at all. Uh, these guys, the King, Dutch Mantel, they've all said, man, back then, it was all a blur. You know, it, it meant something to you guys because you just saw us every Monday night and every Saturday morning. But, man, you know, we're not only traveling and wrestling uh, in a different town every day, but we're also trying to come up with ideas and we're writing the television show. So it's it's all going to just go by so fast and we're not going to remember, believe it or not, if Mill Mascaris was truly there that night or even on the card at all. We asked Bill Dundee, uh, who appeared on the undercard, and he said, no, no, I, I've never appeared on a card with the guy. But then, you know, yeah, I asked him to take a look at the result. He looked at it. He goes, well, I'll be damned. And, it, you know, and he wasn't saying that it wasn't the real Mill Maskers. He just didn't remember at all that Mill Maskers was billed in the territory. And as it just so happens, even though a lot of 1979 footage has surfaced, that particular show has not. And so we don't, you know, for, and for the life of me, I can't remember the exact explanation of why Idol was bringing in Mascaris. I do know that the whole thing about the stretcher was because of the fact that, uh, and we talked about this on Austin Idol's podcast, that uh, supposedly, I think, I think Lawler had a bleeding ulcer and had passed out in a, <laughs> had passed out in a men's room. Idol was trying to say that maybe he was doing something else. Uh, but they went with the story that Idol had kicked him in the gut too hard uh, with a stiff shot and put him in the hospital. So the whole idea was that, you know, Lawler was out for revenge. He was out of the hospital. He had missed a Monday night and was coming back with Jackie Fargo as his partner because that's the kind of guy you want in a fight like this. And again, there was footage. You actually saw the footage on the news, correct? Yeah, uh, at, at five thirty. This is this is how powerful that that Memphis wrestling show was. I'm sure that, and Jack Eaton was a good sport. Jack Eaton was the legendary uh, Channel Five sportscaster, but mostly known for calling Memphis State basketball, Memphis State football. His his, and they were his. He loved that job, and I think he tolerated wrestling. And he would sort of do the results in, in very, de very deadpan fashion. They'd be like, ah, Jerry, Jarrett, or Jerry Calhoun rendered senseless momentarily by an errant blow. <laughs> and he would sort of sort of chuckle to himself uh, as, as he was, you know, on. Oh, Bill Dundee does not know Jerry Lawler has a chain. Pow! He does now. <laughs> uh, just, just hilarious. But you, you always tuned in on Tuesdays at 530. Because he would open his sportscast with highlights from the main event. And not only did I see that footage, but Mark James did as well. But unfortunately, this was about, I think, a month before my parents got our first VCR. So I ended up taping a lot of those over the years, but I did not get that one. Someone has to have that footage. I am hoping that somehow, somewhere... Somebody has not only that episode of Memphis Wrestling, but a whole collection, maybe on beta somewhere, <laughs> of just all these great Memphis Wrestling shows. My uncle Robert uh, had for years a 1978 show, and I remember like it occurred to me many years later that they had that in pristine condition. And I called him. I was like, you remember the beta player you had? Uh-huh. And, the, the, and it was Handsome Jimmy's first babyface turn. And actually, and also Jimmy Hart's first appearance in the studio. It was it was just amazing wow. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because Lawler was, the story was that Lawler had just won his match over Terry Sawyer 
and had to immediately leave. So they're kind of setting up the angle, right, for Valiant to turn babyface, that he's got to make these personal appearances. And he's got so many, being the king, that he has to have somebody remind him. So he's like, uh, I don't even know where I'm going today. Jimmy, Jimmy, come over here. And Jimmy Hart walks over, and he's like, well, you're going to be in Jonesboro <laughs> uh, over at the Tasty Freeze, and then you go wrestle that night, and then, you know, starts rattling off all these appearances. And then Lawler goes, all right, that's about enough out of you, Jimmy. And he shoves Hart, and Lance Russell, and Hart's first appearance, strikes first with the insult. He goes, huh, look at that. He's so he's so skinny, you practically knocked him down, Jerry. <laughs> As we all know, Jimmy Hart would have the last laugh and the loudest in his final appearance on the show when he dumped a bag of flour over Lance's head. Where's the footage? Did you get the beta tape? No, he. they sold it. Uh, they sold everything at a garage sale for like 20 bucks. <laughs> it just kills me. Back to Mill Scott. Obviously, you were face to face with him right next to him. I've seen the picture and I'm sure many <laughs> other people have and. We'll continue to see it every time you post it for the next several years. I've got it framed right now on my wall. Oh, no. <laughs> is there anything else? Is there anything where I'm not asking that wasn't obvious in the audio that you think is important to note? Um, I, I, I'm going to hold off until I actually have uh, a chance to forward that audio to a friend of mine. Because, again, Bill, it's, it was almost like I was I was asking for top secret information. Like, we're, like perhaps we were still in 1979 and you're not supposed to ask the kind of questions I was asking. Uh, and, again, they were all, like, very interesting. Like, one of the guys actually – and I'm not going to say he was a bouncer. But the whole thing, the whole thing was completely dodgy because you, you walk into this place and, it, and it's not like a regular – this place is not there all the time. They had set up that day <laughs> – uh in this abandoned retail store that you know obviously they had rented for the afternoon and there's a big curtain <laughs> you can't even look at mill maskers unless you pay money <laughs> and then you go through and there's like all these people surrounding him like he's gonna get jumped or something uh it it, it, it was it was just odd and it, so anyway the what i you know mill looks at the book and he does the check mark the guy goes hey let me see that and he like really, he's really looking at it and looking at me, and I, I, the whole thing. I actually felt, well, I guess I was technically breaking the law by, by recording it without their knowledge, but uh, it really felt like uh, I was like this was some kind of clandestine uh, mission or something. So I, I guess the best way of putting it would be like you, you know, again, you can't tell from the audio, but when I would ask him for these specifics, he he would sort of veer to his his right and and whisper like and speak in spanish and then he, either his handler would answer or then he would give me one of those very well yeah uh, that is the nature of a professional wrestler especially a superstar like me who travels all over the world and i you know i had the feeling i just knew when i said you know you were a superhero to me i would see you in these outfits all over the cover and you're flying around and uh, gosh you know you were my super i felt like well yes i was your superhero, and I was a superhero to millions around the world. <laughs> See, he only can act like that because someone like you walks in that room and turns into a child. <laughs> well, hey, man, fair enough. I was, I, you know, again, that was the that was the whole thing that I was going for. That whole kind of wide eyed. Oh my gosh, it's such an honor to meet you, sir. I didn't. I definitely did not want to put him on guard, uh, but I wanted to get. And it wasn't just one question. 
you know, were you in Memphis? I, I needed to ask several questions in order to be satisfied. And I guess the best thing that I got, and I do have just this hilarious picture of after, even after Mill did his emphatic check mark next to his name and signed, uh, I think he even, I think he still managed to misspell Scott somehow. <laughs> um, He's still he, he's like he's he's got his hand on his on his masked chin and he's looking at the book, <laughs> you know, and I would just give anything to know if he was like really going, what, wait a minute. Was I was I in was I at the Mid-South Coliseum or not? Uh, I, this is, you know, what, what's so frustrating about this, I just know that there are still going to be some people out there that say, nah, this doesn't prove anything. We need someone to ask him in Spanish. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for saying not in Mexican. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I don't know how, I don't know. I I've tried doing research before uh, on if, you know, if, there, if there's ever been a, a, a detailed, like a good book about his life, uh, how willing he is, how much he, you know, and how much does he remember? Uh, you know, the answers he gave me, yeah, you know, yeah, but uh, yeah, of course, Houston and then Amarillo and the Funks, yes. So, you know, and he wasn't answering slowly or anything like that, but it was very methodical. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know how old he is, but I mean, gosh, I, I mean, he would have to be what in his 70s, wouldn't he? At least. And as of a few years ago, he was still active. I don't know if he still is. Huh, he's still working? <laughs> he was. I'm, I'm actually looking up his age oh, as you, okay. uh, do that. Mil Moscaris is 76 years old. Okay. And, yeah. So, and yeah, according to Wikipedia, he's been married four times. <laughs> Maybe one of his ex wives knows the truth. <laughs> <laughs> you should have asked him about his brother. You know, hey, Mil, how's Dose? <laughs> well, I almost uh, asked about his daughter. I was going to say, Howard Bomb says hello. <laughs> but I, <laughs> again, I already felt like I was pushing it, but uh, I really wanted to ask him about the stretcher and, and doing that. But I, I don't know, man, it just, I, it was a whole kind of feel thing. You know, I was like, if I can ask that, if he's, if he's receptive to it, if he seems like he's remembering and he goes, you know, Oh, I just had a good time that night and just helped Jerry Jarrett out. But he didn't quite say that. He just nodded a lot and, Looked at it, and but the biggest thing again was that little tick. It was just ah, yeah, house denial. Yes, yes. Like the only, he, the only thing he said no to was you getting the extra autograph. Yeah. Well, no, he was going to do it, and then one of his handlers nearly leaped over the uh, the table. No, 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 no. He only paid for one. So, uh, but that was the end of that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like you said, he doesn't say no to anything. And he agrees with everything you say, but he doesn't explicitly say anything. Right. Like, I mean, this guy ought to run for office. I yeah. mean, seriously. And, and, it, and it was very much like that. It was like uh, it almost felt like I, I suddenly had put him on trial, you know. Uh, and again, he, they weren't. When I, and when I did ask him about, like, will you write, you know, write C if this really was you? He really did laugh. He, I mean, he really thought that was funny that I had a hard time believing that it was him. So I think that even says a little something, right? I mean, because to him, he's like, yeah, why is it so hard for you to believe? And I did outline the whole Hill thing. Maybe I should have just gone for it. So because you wrote a 
damn stretcher. <laughs> you never sell, period, let alone do a stretcher job. That's why people don't believe it. But I just, I just, uh, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. You don't know if it was the real Mil Moscaris in Memphis that night in 1979. How do you know this was the real Mil Moscaris? <laughs> this was definitely him, dude. It, it's it's all in the eyes. It's, uh, you know, the physique may be gone. Was he sucking in his gut? Uh, <laughs> was he on his tippy toes? Well, he did he he did have to take a bathroom break uh, during our discussion. No, I'm just kidding. Uh no, he. I did not see any tiptoeing at all. But that, dude, that was definitely him, without a doubt. I mean, who else is gonna show up with a, with an eight, seven or eight person entourage and wear that kind of outfit? That that was definitely Bill Mascaros, and it was one of those personal appearances. Again, I've been keeping it out for. I wish I it would have been great if you would give me a little bit more of a heads up, but because uh, <laughs> I would have been there right, I would have been there at nine thirty when he arrived, hopefully maybe before anyone else and maybe had a little bit more time to spend with him. But, uh, I didn't know, but I, I, I was, I'm glad I got there at all. I mean, I was flying, uh, down the one Oh one to get there. So it took me 45 minutes to get there. I ended up calling Jerry Jarrett and we talked for a little bit about Mill Mascaris and, and then we, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, about Brian Lawler and he was, He's been very sentimental lately uh, on his podcast, talking about all these people who uh, mean a lot to him. And one thing that he did say, and, and I wanted to to make a point of this, because it, re it refers to a guest of ours who we had on the show not too long ago. Uh, he was talking about how he you know, worked in the bicycle business before he went full time into wrestling and that, you know, every spoke on the wheel has to work. Uh, for for the for the wheel to turn, and he viewed everybody who worked for him, and he and he tried to be as kind as he could to the person selling tickets, uh, which I guess in Louisville was his mother, and in Nashville as well, uh, the guy selling cokes, the person put you know putting up chairs around ringside, the ring crew, the referee. He talked at great length about how Paul Morton was never late. Uh, he was always he was the the referee, the head referee, along with Jerry Calhoun. Uh, but he also was the guy responsible for making sure that the ring made it to the town, got put up in time for the show and torn down. And he said he was just absolutely flawless during his entire run. And it doesn't sound like a big deal. But the fact that he's, you know, remembering these little details about people who worked for them, worked for him, who may not have any idea that he did notice those little things. Uh, and he brought up, he goes, wasn't there, he goes, and I hate the name job boy. I'm not going to say that enhancement talent named Jameson. And I said, Jim Jameson. Yeah. He, we had him on the show recently talking about the, uh, the last sellout at the mid South Coliseum. Cause he was part of that angle when, uh, your son, Jeff, uh, was a referee and got attacked by Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell. And he's like, yeah, he was great. He, he, in my mind was just as important as Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee in the early 80s because he made everybody look fantastic. And I left him a message yesterday and asked him to call me, and I told him this morning. And, man, he did, it was cool. He he loved hearing that. He said, and why it, didn't anyone say that to me in 1981? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, after after last, I think, oh man, the following week, you know, this is the week after the deal with uh, Jeff Jarrett. You know, the heels are out for blood, and they do a number on on Jim and Landell. You know, I think had gotten with him beforehand and told him that he was going to really be laying it in. Uh, I hope that at least on that day that uh, maybe they slipped him uh, an extra 20 bucks or something and, and let him know that the effort was uh, was not unnoticed. But but Jerry Jarrett said he often thinks about those guys now because at the time he was so obsessed with with wrestling and the next idea that maybe he didn't say it enough. Interesting. Maybe he'll give Mill a call. He said <laughs> that all these years later, he still appreciates and thanks him for coming to Memphis in January of 1979, and that there was a little eight-year-old boy who has not shut up about it ever since. And continues to act like an eight-year-old boy uh, (laughs) every time the subject is broached. Yes. Oh, and uh, speaking of Brian Lawler, you know, obviously Brian has uh, really been on not only my mind, but gosh, if you have any connection to Memphis Wrestling, ever been a fan uh, I'm sure that it, it did affect you in, in some way. I really wish I could have been there for the service. Uh, but unfortunately, I, I left Memphis on the day uh, that, that Brian passed away. Uh, so I was unable to to make it back on t- such a short notice. Uh, but I do want to say I was talking about Brian's quick wit, and then I proceeded to give two examples where I actually got the better of him, uh, which probably wasn't very fair. Brian, Brian's standard thing for me, his standard insult, uh, we were doing backyard wrestling and the announcer was a friend of Brian and Kevin Lawler named Jeremy Williams, who worked as Mr. Sunshine. And he was like this evil heel manager and he wore like these bright yellow clothes and the whole deal, you know, again, one of Kevin Lawler's creations. And he kept, because, because he did not know me, he, he did a thing that has annoyed me my entire life. He has, he mispronounced my name every single possible way you could think of unintentionally going calling me Bowden, Boudin, uh Bockton, Boot, you know, just every every way you could possibly screw up my name, he ran the gamut. And Brian, whenever he would see me, he would go, Oh, look everybody, it's Bowden, Boudin, Boudin, Bowden, Boudin, Bowden, Boudin. <laughs> and if you stop and think about it, there really is no comeback for that. <laughs> so <laughs> So uh, a lot of times, you know, either Brian would start with that, knowing that, you know, I couldn't come back with anything, or that would be his response if I got him in something with a with a really good one-liner, and he didn't have anything, so he would always go back to the, oh, shut up, Boudin, Bowden, Boudin, Booger. No one even knows your name. Uh, but one of the best ad-libs I think I've, I've ever seen, Brian was wearing uh, bubblegum pink tights and black trunks and black boots the night that he was teaming with his dad to go against the undertaker and Brett, the Hitman Hart, It was the St. Valentine's day massacre. And I, you know, it was so funny watching the locker room on that night. I so desperately wanted to get a picture made with one of those guys. And I even had the picture in mind. I wanted the undertaker to have his hand on my shoulder. Like he had just come up behind me and I, you know, I was going to have this terrified look on my face and I had gotten with the photographer and told him what I had money. He goes, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. It was such, it was so amateur hour back there. Everyone like from, I love Billy Travis, but Billy Travis got like two or three pictures taken, three different poses, which not surprisingly made it to the gimmick table the following week <laughs> that he would sell. Uh, everybody was acting like marks for these guys. So I never, I was like, you know what? I'm going to just play it cool and not say anything. But 
they're going they're about to go to the ring and brett looks over at brian he goes what what the fuck are you doing he goes brian goes what he goes dude you you're wearing you're wearing pink and black he goes do you do the sharpshooter too and brian without just without even blinking goes oh yeah but you know how you go to the right i roll to the left And I just thought, and I just thought that was just a great line, uh, and it really seemed to come off the cuff. And Bret Hart just really cracked up at that, and just, and then just kind of looked at Brian in the pink and black one more time, and then just shook his head and walked off. <laughs> oh man! Hey, for everyone who's been listening to stories about Brian Christopher the last few weeks, is there a match you could recommend for people to check out? A good example of just how good he was in the ring. You know. Um, I, and I hate to say this, off the, off, but off the top of my head, I would say his best babyface match was the hair versus hair against dangerous Doug Gilbert, where and I was managing Doug, and Lawler is in his corner, and it's a it's a really good match. But their best match together, and I thought those two really clicked really well. Uh, their best match, and again, this is something that Brian. It's funny that you bring this up because this is another case of Brian doing something nice for me. Um, I was so dying to get some finishes in because I just felt like I had a knack for it. And the first time I did it, I spoke up way too soon. And they told me, they ran me out of the dressing room. Doug Gilbert told me, get the hell out of here. <laughs> Jerry Lawler's like, shut up, you idiot. Uh, and then slowly, Moondog Spot, Larry Booker, uh, started listening to my ideas. And he he would, and even sometimes when he would get a fin- finish from, from Randy or one of the other boys, he would come up to me like, Scott, what do you think about that? And, uh, you know, I'd say, well, that's good. Or, you know, could do a variation of that. And so he was the, the first one to really uh, pay attention and realize that maybe I had some some ability in that direction. Um, but Brian and uh, and Doug were going to have a match where it had to go five falls. Uh, well, the best of five, I guess. And they were trying to come up with with the finishes for it. And I said, well, what? A-? And again, they, they, they were they were stomped. You know, they had like one finish in mind and I can't remember exactly what it was. I said, well, why don't each finish like sort of play off the other one? Like, you know, uh, Brian, you catch him uh, and he's or, or, or Doug, you catch Brian and Brian's got his foot on the ropes and you knock it off. And then the second one, you, you're you're attacking Brian in the corner. Brian lifts you up, puts his feet on the ropes for leverage and gets a one, two, three on you where every finish sort of fed the other one. And, and, you know, and until the, and, and it ended up going five falls and Brian ended up winning. And Brian, as I'm telling this, Brian goes, he, he smiles real big. He goes, he goes, this is good. This is good. It's like a story. <laughs> it's like a story. <laughs> and, uh, and they did it, you know, and it was, and it was so cool for me to go. And that was when I was a referee and, uh, you know, it was a, such a big thrill to go out there and referee your match and the boys are doing your finishes. It was just a cool thing. And I think that and and not only that, and I'm not saying that just because I came up with the finishes, they just seemed to have their working shoes on that night. And because it had to go five falls, I think they went 30 minutes. And I think that was probably one of the better matches that I've seen Brian in. Maybe I'm a little biased because they were using my finishes, but I don't know. Um, Of course, you know, Brian as a heel was, I think, a great worker. Uh, all his bouts with Jeff Jarrett, the Jeff Jarrett feud itself, I think, is a, it's just a treasure uh, because it really reinvigorated Jerry Jarrett, you know, who saw, I think, the second coming of Jerry Lawler in Brian. You know, Brian went, his, went in his matches 
90% of his matches with a chain, just like Jerry Lawler used to do. I mean, there was no mistaking the direction. And that feud, just it so reminded me of maybe the Lawler-Jarrett battles uh, from, from 76 and definitely the Bill Dundee series with all the crazy stipulations. Brian, it's, he's so good when negotiating. There's a clip that uh, I believe it's it's part of Jerry Lawler's uh, tribute to Brian. And I, I actually, I'm just saying this, uh, when, that, when that show was filmed, Jerry Lawler called me the day before and he said, you know Brian's career really well. Can you put together some clips? And I picked, I just totally remember the clip of him negotiating a hair match with Jeff Jarrett where Burt Prentice turns him down, Mike Samples turns him down, even Zeke Rivers. <laughs> This little hang around kind of Mickey Pool type guy, his valet turns him down and he has to go with Mr. Clyde, uh, Kevin's friend, Nick Nahad, who recently passed away. And I went back and watched that again this past week. And it's just so it's just so good. Brian just increasingly loses his cool as each guy turns him down. He's like, and he's screaming, I'm the boss. If I see your dick gum hairs on the line, your hairs on the line. And then each guy like just turns around and walks off and he's just getting steamed. And then to see uh, Nick Nahad, Mr. Clyde come out there and put his hair on the line, uh, just seeing Nick and Brian together uh, and realizing that they're, that they're not here anymore uh, is definitely emotional. But, uh, but that to me, I, I just, I think Brian for a brief window just had so much going for him and was really the total package. It's not necessary. Was he having four star matches every night? No, uh, probably not technically, but the biggest thing about Brian's matches, I just felt like he just grasped the psychology of wrestling better than most. And, and so naturally, I know you got such a kick out of the day that Brian caused your finish to be used in a match. You refereeing. I'm going to give you another chance to come up with a finish. <laughs> right now for this show. Okay. Well, I, actually, I told you about this uh, not too long ago. I think but I just got into the into the business. I had no idea how to take a bump. Eric Embry and Tom Pritchard had just come into the territory and they were running roughshod over everybody. They jumped Jerry Lynn and Cody, uh, Cody Michaels. I almost said Cody Rhodes. And I'm trying to break it up. And Eric Embry grabs me and is about to toss me over the top rope and i go no 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 no, no. i don't know how to do it i don't know how to do it <laughs> and so he has to adjust and try to throw me through the middle rope and it's very awkward i'm trying to catch myself my arm gets hooked between the the top and middle strand and i'm dangling there and i want you to know they look like garden hoses that saturday morning ring those are those are steel cables I thought my arm was going to snap in two. And then Tom Preacher gets on the top rope and adds even more pressure. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm dangling in my starched polo shirt uh, with my fraternity pin uh, right next to the polo horse. And just totally helpless, obviously in pain. And Jerry Lawler told me later, he goes, boy, you have never heard such a pop. When you got caught up on those ropes... <laughs> Brian and Tony went absolutely apeshit. <laughs> and I just went, yeah, those guys, those bastards. Uh, anyway, man, those are, those are just really special times. And uh, I know you and I have talked about maybe taking a closer look at the early 90s because it was definitely a cool time for, for me, uh, for Kevin Lawler, for Dick Nahad, and for Brian Lawler. 
I think that would be really cool. I think a look at the USWA years would be a lot of fun. The listeners would really like that. That's probably something we should look into in the uh, coming weeks. We will indeed. Just a reminder that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadia and Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden. You can follow Brian at Great Brian Last. You can follow Memphis Mascaras at Memphis Mascaras. <laughs> and you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And don't forget to support the show and also support a very good cause. As most of you know, the golden boy Jerry Gray is battling stage four colon cancer. We uh, just posted a new round of T-shirts and hoodies with a portion of from the new Jerry Lawler tee that we have, the famous shot of him throwing powder in Jack Briscoe's eyes on, uh, April, I believe it was April 26, 1977, Jerry Jarrett's first show has the owner of the territory. That photo has traditionally been in black and white. I colorized it, and it looks great on a T-shirt. $3 from each shirt sold will go to Jerry Gray's GoFundMe account. $7 from the new Kentucky Fried Wrestling hoodie will go directly to uh, Jerry Gray's GoFundMe account. And that's pretty much our profit margin on that one. We're doing that uh, to hopefully raise another $300 for Jerry like we did before. For Brian Lass, this is Scott Bowden. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling. <laughs>